Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. You're welcome. Tonight, here we go. I'm going to do too much, too fast. I know better. Those are the speaker rules I'm going to violate. I'm going to touch on four topics. Really, two of them are connected closely. Four topics. And then I'm going to give you how we can have a path to a grace-filled home. And it's straight out of God's Word. If you're taking notes, that would be a huge plus. Uh, I say it often, note-takers are history makers, or note-takers are world changers. So take notes. This is, uh, this is helpful. You realize we're talking about parenting, and we're just skimming across the surface. So going into, um, delving into these topics is a great idea. Stay biblically based. Go to trusted sources. Do not believe everything you read. Read with a gospel filter and a biblical filter, but read and examine and search. As we were talking about technology, which we're about to talk about in a moment, when you research maybe parenting or an issue in your home, um, you've got to read with discernment and a gospel filter. I said a little while ago, every coherent and incoherent thought that's ever been uttered on the planet is available to you and your children in about five seconds. Do you realize this? And that is a great thing and a dangerous thing. So as parents, research, but use discernment. Be very careful that you have trusted sources that are biblical in their worldview. First thing I want to talk about tonight is discipline. So jot this down. This is about discipline. Tonight, I couldn't do Q&A, and, and I don't purport to have all the answers ever. But what I do have, I think, is some tested principles about discipline uh, Three principles in particular and a couple of lines. You must have boundaries, expectations, discipline, and ro- rules and roles in your home. Uh, relationship without rules equals rebellion. Relationship without rules equals rebellion. Relationship uh, or rules... Uh, Let me see if I can get this right. Um, Rules plus relationship equals an ordered life. And what you want, I'm sure, is an ordered life. It's predictable that, again, all the disclaimers, that doesn't mean anybody can't run off the rails. But you need rules and relationship in order to have a grace-filled home. In the area of discipline, I want to give you three Broad looks at discipline. Three broad looks. Number one, power assertion. Write that down. Power assertion. Power assertion is obviously self-evident there. It is asserting power for the sake of discipline. Pardon me. Punishment can be a part of discipline, certainly. But by discipline, we're really talking about bringing a child back into alignment. Or congruence with the expectations. So discipline, when you think of the discipline of working out, you think about the discipline of learning a language, or the discipline of getting out of bed and going to work or school, discipline is not punishment. Discipline by the very nature is to put a child in a lane, in an area where their character can grow. Punishment is 
is a negative reinforcement for behavior. And the management adage that I shared a little while ago, and the, and the flip side of this is, um, behavior that's rewarded is repeated, but behavior that is punished lessens. That's the theory on the surface. Power assertion suggests this. By power, at its core, by power, I can make you do what I want you to do. In the area of punishment, it can do that as well. It can, it can hold punishment over behavior. So, you've got to be home, young man, at 11 o'clock with the car. Hope you have a great time with your friends tonight, but I need you in the house at 11 o'clock, safe and sound. Uh, if you're going to be late, if something happens, I need to hear from you. And then your young man shows up 20 minutes late, no phone call. Well, there's a discipline issue, putting them in the lane, but there may also be a punishment or a consequence, which we'll talk about in a moment. Power assertion says, I hold some power over you. I can take the keys. If you have a toddler and the toddler's fascinated by the hot stove, you have to deal with the toddler in a way that they understand by power assertion. You remove them from the uh, danger or perhaps you little pat on the hand, a stern no, like you mean it and you mean it. So it's an expression of power over a child and it works all the way up. I would normally move around when I do this, but let me start right here to say, when your baby is born, they are absolutely dependent upon you. Can I get an amen? 100%. You lay that baby down and you don't attend to it for a day or two or five, that baby will be gone when you go back. They are absolutely 100% dependent on you. You have all the power and all the responsibility for providing and protecting uh, that baby as their life moves on, you have diminishing responsibilities, ideally anyway, and they have increased responsibilities. And the goal as a parent is to increase their responsibilities. And one of the ways we do that is by discipline. It is defining the boundaries, the lanes, and the expectation, and the roles, and the rules, and then reinforcing when properly done. Now, lots of parents don't reinforce when things are done well. And it doesn't have to be a party or a, a, a new iPhone. All it has to be is that a boy. Good job. Hey, I saw how you did that. I really appreciate it. You took responsibility for that. I didn't even tell you. That is awesome. High five. Here's an ice cream sandwich. Whatever it is. There is something to rewarding behavior that's positive that's a part of power assertion as well. Power assertion says, I can reward you as well as punish you for behavior. Now, here's the good news and bad news. Write this down about power assertion. And remember, it, it expresses itself differently at every season. Here's the good news. Power assertion will get a response. And if you truly have power in that area, uh, you can get alignment or obedience, depending on how much power you're willing to assert. The bad news is, what you're teaching is the person with the most power gets to be in charge. Power rules the day. Do you know in our culture there are more and more grandmothers and grandfathers raising grandchildren? Have you noticed this trend in the culture? You know what happens when a boy turns about 17 and he's 185 pounds and he's been playing tight end and his grandmother's been telling him what to do and he is finally fed up with that and there's conflict in the home? 
That power assertion looks a little upside down. And I'm not saying that grandmothers can't take care of business. But I'm working at a Christian boarding school and we see that kind of thing all the time. Power assertion can, if you have the power, can make behavior happen. But the weakness is you teach that power is what happens to get behavior. When I ask questions sometimes at leadership conferences, I'll say, who are the greatest leaders you know? And then you have to do all the categories and all the, the qualifications there because people will say Hitler and Stalin and Mao, if it was about getting people to do something, you want them to do. And your goal as a parent is not just to get your child to do something you want them to do. It is to help them grow so that they accept responsibility. They see what to do because you've taught them and put them in an environment they understand. So out of personal responsibility and discipline, they will do what they need to do. It's character development. Now, sometimes you have to have power because you're building trust. And I'm going to talk about trust specifically in a couple of minutes But trust implies that you mean what you say and you're going to do what you say you're going to do. And you've got to win the battles early on. And that's why you might have to use power in a way you might not want to use it later. Quick example. Some demonic artist created Disney's Disney on Ice capade thing. Have you ever been to this? It'll cost you a college tuition to go in to watch seven people who didn't quite make the Olympics skate in Cinderella outfits. And then after your toddler and your little girl in her princess outfit is long finished with this and it's over, you will walk out past all of the merchandise that Disney wants to sell you. Well, we bought... We took our little boy when he was a little boy. He was about, I don't know, how old was he, Kathy? Three or four? Two or three? So we go to the Coliseum in Jackson. We go to Disney on Ice, this communist-inspired terrorist plot. We watch people spin in circles, grumpy, dopey, sleepy. They're all skating. People, when you've watched people skate for a while, they're all skating. You know what I mean? For me, after about 30 minutes, they'd have had to set themselves on fire. I mean, it was just two hours of taking my money. So we leave, and we walk by the merchandise, and there is an inflatable sword. And my son was going to have that inflatable sword. And he started this. Do you know this posture when you're holding on to him at about two or three? And he was crying and yelling for that sword. By the way, my son is 34 and he's awesome. He was not that night. And I've got a hold of him and he's screaming like bloody murder. We carry him out of the Coliseum in Jackson and God bless us, we had parked at the trademark like a mile and a half away and he is screaming bloody murder like I am killing him because I'm not letting him have this sword and he's demanding it. I mean, he, I must insist, he is saying in a loud, screaming two-year-old voice. Kathy is about to weep. People are about to call Child Protective Services on me because he is not going to get the sword. He is not going to win. When we got to the car, have you parents had this opportunity, this challenge, this moment of enlightenment and growth where you had to put your child in the car seat, but they were not going? Have you had that moment? 
I had to bend him over my knee and break him in half to put him in the child seat. It was, I'm surprised I'm not still in federal prison. It was terrible. Let me tell you what I did in that moment. I exerted power control, power assertion, because I was going to win because I'm the adult. What do many people do? They give up that battle early on. And I said many, many times to my wife and to others, we're the adults, we must win, he must lose when he demands. That's just, that's the way it's going to be. Because when I say no, he has got to trust me. And moms and dads, let me say this to you. If your child knows, whatever age they are, that if they ask often enough, bother you enough, or they've got your number and they're going to be pleasers to get what they want, if they know they can do that, they've got your number. They do not respect and trust you. So when the moment comes and you have to say the hard thing, they need to know that you have their best intention in mind and you mean what you say. I'm a little out of school here. Josh knows I share a handful of these stories. Josh has been married for 12 years to Stacy. They're having their baby tomorrow. We've mentioned that. Josh wanted to get engaged to Stacy on an England mission trip. Thought that would be incredibly romantic. She had just gotten back from Africa where she had served for a year. Josh was, Josh was a couple of years younger than his wife. He says to me, on the way to the car, that, on, to the mission trip, I'm not going on. He says, uh, Dad, I just want to let you know, I'm, what do you think? I'm thinking about proposing to Stacy in England. Josh... Man, Stacy is incredible. And man, I so respect that. I actually introduced him, another story. I so respect that you are not ready for that. When you have a job, when you are ready to be responsible on that level, when you look, can look down the road and, and determine by God's will what it is you need to do with your life, that's a moment you might prayerfully ask her to marry you, but you are not ready for this yet. And Josh said, yes, sir. Now, I'm not surprised that they, I wouldn't be surprised that they hadn't already talked about that before there was an official proposal. But Josh held back from that. No ring, no proposal on that trip. You know why Josh trusted me? I'd like to tell you it's because I broke his will and put him into the car seat at two. But I'm pretty sure that's not it. I'm pretty sure that we had a relatively consistent relationship of, I want the best for you. You can trust me. Power assertion. Good news, you can get behavior. Bad news, you teach Pat the one with the power wins. You have to be really careful that you use that sparingly at whatever stage. Otherwise, it becomes a, a back and forth. And parents are surprised when they have controlled power assertion. Almost every dynamic of their child's life, and then their child rebels when they're 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 years old, they're stunned that they would go to Ole Miss or State or Southern and something and, and act the fool. Well, hello, you didn't help them understand and act the fool in smaller ways earlier where you could corral that and discipline, put back into lane. So you've controlled their life up until this minute. Now power assertion and control is over. And you wonder why they've gone haywire? Well, 
because they have been waiting for 18 years to get out from under this so they can go haywire. You ought to see the looks that you're giving me. They are awesome. Here's what I suspect. I suspect some of you have lived this. Second approach to discipline. Number two, love withdrawal. Love withdrawal doesn't have a gospel center at all. And I don't recommend it on any way. Love withdrawal is a huge broad category for manipulating people emotionally or relationally to get them to do what you want them to do. Guilt, shame, blame, bribing. Be careful about bribing your kids. That'll get away from you in a hurry. But love withdrawal means if you don't do what I want you to do, I'm going to turn my back on you. And by the way, I don't have time for a marriage seminar tonight, but spouses, we have to be really careful because we can play that game too. A lot of us have heard a door slam at some point in our life or experienced a cold shoulder. Now, I never have because my wife is awesome and I think we know I'm awesome I'm just saying, love withdrawal, it's not gospel-centric. Be very careful about love withdrawal in the life of your kids. You can shame your kids real quickly, and you do not want to do that because the outcome is not great. What does that look like? Honey, I am so disappointed in you. I do, and I do, and I do for you. And this is the thanks I get. I'm embarrassed to even walk into the store. I don't want to go to church because people will know I'm your mama or I'm your daddy. That kind of thing, that'll come back to haunt you. You want to respect, even when respect is not earned, and you want to lift and highly value that student, even as you do discipline. Third approach to discipline is induction. And induction is kind of a one word for um, beyond power assertion. It's the talk. It's the understanding. It's the teachable moment. And these are really broad. But I know a whole lot of guys my age, when we were in high school or junior high, we would rather have had the paddling than the talk. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Or you'd rather have, could I just get this over, is a whole lot better, especially for boys, than to have the talk. That's why you know the talk is effective, if it's effective, and I'm trusting that it is. Having the talk says... Well, this is the expectations, and these are the choices you made, not me, and these are the consequences of the choices you made. And if there aren't clear consequences, you know, like they've created some way to mess up, then you have to say, what do you think the consequences of this ought to be? Now, you don't have to go with that. They say, well, I think I ought to be able to eat cake and get a new phone. And you say, I think you can hand me the car keys and clean up for the next three weeks. I mean, you don't have to go with that. Don't don't give in to that. Induction is the teachable moment. It's speaking into a child's life. The next thing I want to talk about is trust and responsibility. And it is dancing with discipline. Trust and responsibility. This morning I started the story, I could do 30 minutes of this, about how generations ago there was responsibility that was consistent in families, there was accountability, it was frontal brain development because we had responsibility. We saw cause and effect, decision-making and consequence. I used this morning, I think, if I don't get the eggs, we don't have eggs for breakfast. We don't have a lot of that now. And part of the reason is we move from places where we had responsibility 
after World War II actually into cities in increasing numbers in urban settings. And we had a house, and we had three and a half kids, and we had to have something for our kids to do all the time. And the explosion of sort of adolescence in the 50s and 60s and 70s was, we've got to keep these kids busy. As a matter of fact, it's another talk, and I can footnote this, but churches, many churches, this church probably, but certainly churches older than this one or churches with other history, started doing youth ministry or student ministry with these words, we need to have something for the young people to do to keep them busy during the summer. That was never really a huge concern in the history of the planet until the Western culture after World War II, for the most part. But after World War II, we had to keep our kids busy. So the pendulum has swung, and many people in places, maybe not in your family or maybe not even in your uh, town of Brookhaven, keep their kids scheduled to the max. I need something for them to do all the time. We need to entertain them all the time. And experts, educational theorists will tell you our kids are too busy. They don't have margin of time to be quiet or still or to think or to be creative and creative play. Also, in the area of uh, trust and responsibility in those processes, uh, we, we have protected our kids so they haven't made mistakes with responsibility so they can learn from their mistakes. We have protected them. Dr. Tim Elmore is on the resource list there. He's fantastic. He is a consultant to Chick-fil-A and some Major League Baseball teams, and he's incredible. He's a great author. And people, YouTube, podcast, he's incredible. So Dr. Tim Elmore says this, uh, this overprotection culturally, some social, social scientists theorize, really started with the advent of the missing children's pictures on the milk carton. Anybody remember that? Or the other theory about cultural indicators was when we had the Tylenol scare. Remember that when poison was in a Tylenol bottle in a drugstore? And then it became, as we saturated by media, our kids are going to go missing or our kids are going to get hurt. And we've come to the point, you've all seen the memes on Facebook, most of you. I grew up in the generation that laid across the back of the back seat of the car. Anybody with me? I drank out of a rubber hose. We played until the, until the neighborhood uh, street lights came on. We didn't have a cell phone. We had chores to do. Uh, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And we have pendulum swung to the point of protecting our children to the point that we have become, as I said this morning, lawnmower parents where we are mowing down any obstacles and we're protecting our kids. Some of us, we put our kids in bubble wrap. And the teachers will tell you if they're old enough to have generational vision, and I know this sounds cliche, but I would argue that it is true, broad brush. The generation that I grew up in and many of you in the room If the principal had called my mom and dad and said, Gary did something stupid today and he's going to be disciplined for that, I'd have been disciplined how many times? Twice. I'd have gotten it at school and I'd have gotten it at home. And the default position would have been, well, you're a 12, 13, 16-year-old kid who made a really bad decision. I got a call from the authority today and we're not having that in my family. But on behalf of teachers everywhere, those tables have turned. And particularly in the 
parts of the school systems that I'm aware of, which are several, the default position is the school is out to get my kids, or that teacher is unfair, or there's a bias in that classroom in whatever way, or uh, there's no way my child would do that. So the meeting is a call the teacher, if not on the carpet, it's call the teacher to account for discipline in the classroom. When we do that, we set up a dynamic where a child will not learn responsibility because they will not have consistent, consistent, trusted consequences. Do we get that? In your family, you have to have consistent trust relationship consequences. Trust and responsibility. I had the opportunity recently to speak to a, a Mississippi oil company, to their leadership. And I talked about trust. And the, the data is clear. When trust rises, let me say that again. When trust rises, when there's more trust, there is more free communication. There are more effective processes in place in the context of this business. And there is longer longevity in the workplace, less churning and turnover. Well, why is that? Because when we trust, we have safety. When you don't trust, there is a lack of safety, which makes us as human beings go to typically fight or flight. And in your homes, when you're trustworthy, when you say what you mean and mean what you say and you're consistent... It provides the barriers, the boundaries, where your kids feel safe because they know what the rules are. Now, the pathway to a grace-filled home recognizes that all of us are going to foul up. I should have an amen there. No, I meant like an amen. All of us are going to foul up. All of us are going to foul up. We're all sinners. And parents, in order to build trust, when they foul up have to seek forgiveness and issue an apology to their children. For some parents, that's incredibly difficult to do. But it builds trust because it says, I'm in need of your forgiveness about overreacting. Or I thought you had done something you have not done. Or whatever the situation is, it it communicates, I am going to be real with you so you can trust me. Because our kids smell us out when we're not truthful. Did you know this? Because you did it with your parents, didn't you? You knew when they were bluffing you or when they were just arbitrarily deciding who was right and wrong or whatever the circumstance was. You could tell it builds trust. And just like these businesses, when you have more trust in your home, communication is better because you're in a safe environment. And when the communication is better, you're more able to have teachable moments to impress the gospel the Shema, into the life of your children. How do we do that? Well, obviously we say and we do what we say we will do, but we also create opportunities for our kids to take responsibility and fail without catastrophic circumstances. They need to fail. They need to try and fail. Oh my gosh, who? I I can't do that. I can't do that. You know what I'm about to say, don't you? I, I can't do that. I remember Carly, our daughter, was a pleaser. I've said this often. Carly would make you doubt original sin. Sweetest girl you have ever met. Unbelievable. 
and she had scoliosis, and she wore a back brace from the seventh grade till she was 14. Cried a couple times over those years, never complained. Sweetest thing you've ever met. And dude, she is a truth and grace warrior today. She is incredible. Could not be more proud of her. But she was the girl who was a pleaser in the sense that if the assignment was due in a week, she needed it done tonight. Any of you have any of those kids? Some of you are going, I would give money for that kid because homework is killing me. I know. Well, our first one, he still owes papers to high school. How he got out, I don't know. But Carly was the pleaser. I mean, she was ahead of the curve. And she came home one day and she failed a test. And it was awesome. I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I'm like, that is cool. Carly, you're going to survive that. Nobody's ever going to ask you when you're 35 and you're in a job interview or you're up for the promotion whether you failed that one test in language one time or whatever it was. Never is that going to happen. It is okay to fail. You're going to be fine, girl. We gave her a high five. Now, if your child is a straight across the board F student, Try not to give them a high five every time they come home with it. Look for a C plus, give them a high five, order an ice cream cake, and call their friends. But for her, she needed to know failure was okay because she was going to live past that. Trust and responsibility, they go hand in hand. When you have responsibility and you exercise responsibility, and it's an environment that's safe because there's high trust, the family system functions better. I'm about to talk about grace-based homes for just a few minutes, and you'll be out of here before six, maybe. Sounded like a solid promise there for just a second. You'll be out of here before six, maybe. That's the way to build trust, Gary. That great illustration, son. I'm going to move. I'm going to move along. I want to get you out of here. The path to a grace-filled home. Let's do this. If you have notes and you're taking notes, I want to give you, uh, I think it's seven, let me look, seven one-anothering phrases from God's Word that should be markers for your home. They should be goals, almost a mission statement for your home. They're how you relate to each other. And the bigger picture of these one-anothering statements from Scripture is really how believers ought to treat each other. One of the things we found about as we build trust and respect is that how we model is reflected. Let me give you a very simple illustration from our home. And I grew up with it, so it was second nature to me. I didn't even think about it at first. We say yes ma'am, no ma'am, yes sir and no sir in our house to everybody. So if my child was a fifth grader and said, hey, dad, can we have pizza tonight? No, sir, can't do that tonight. Hey, dad, can we, um, can we watch whatever on TV tonight? Yes, sir, we can absolutely do that. Or, hey, daddy, yes, sir. You know why we do that? Because we model respect. Early on, we want to model that that's an expectation. It values, when you say yes, sir, to a little guy, or you get down on their level and look them in the eye when it's appropriate, it models value and respect. 
These one another's are the way that we see people with the eyes of Jesus, if you will, and we model respect and value in so many ways. It's the way we do one to another. Here are the seven. Ready? Write them down. Number one, we love one another. How about that? We love one another. John 15, 17 is the verse that comes to mind. But there are dozens of verses that talk about us loving each other. Love one another. That seems simple. And it's really simple when everything's awesome. It's not so simple when somebody really fouls up. Betrays trust. Makes a terrible decision. Hurts the reputation of the family or the witness. But we're called to love one another. Number two, this is a strong one. Out of the book of James, confess your sins to one another. <coughs> Excuse me. Confess your sins to one another, James 5.16. This aligns with asking for forgiveness or apologies. I remember my dad, um, I, I don't know what it was about, I have no idea. Well, I was probably younger than 10 years old, but he really sort of scolded my sister and me. My dad never did spank us. My dad was an Air Force colonel. He could freeze water across the room by looking at it. There was no reason for him to spank me. I mean, he'd just look at me and I would, I would enlist. It was crazy. But my dad really, he came down pretty hard on my sister and me and he came into our room later. We had twin beds. We were maybe seven years old and five years old. And I remember him coming in and apologizing. He said, I, I really, I sort of yelled at you and I was way out of line. And you, you kids love you. I am so sorry. Forgive me. So I'm, four, I'm 64 and I remember that. And he did that multiple times over the years because it was the right thing to do. To right that difficult and strained relationship. Confess your sins to one another. Um, and be careful with that. Sometimes in small group or church life, the body of Christ, somebody will love that because they want to know all your sins. I'm, I'm kind of looking for an amen there, but you know, there are people who would love to know all of your dirty laundry. And the general principle that I've heard from people much godlier and wiser than me is you, you communicate confession in this, to the circle with which it is affected. And oftentimes, if we're not careful, we'll communicate and confess our sin, but we are perhaps communicating and confessing sin for somebody else who was with us at the same time. We just got to be careful about that. In your home, it's not a, I'm, I'm going to tell my kids every bad thing I've ever done. I would not recommend that. Uh, I just would recommend being judicial about uh, being straightforward and keeping right relationships. Number three is kind of like unto it. Forgive one another. Forgive one another. Ephesians 4.32 also listed Colossians 3.13. Just as Christ forgave you, forgive one another. And that may seem like it's apparent. Uh, not to forgive, I love this line, is like swallowing rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. The loser, when you do not forgive, is you. And you have to model that as the parent. Number four, uh, carry one another's burdens, Galatians 6.2. Carry one another's burdens. 
my son-in-law, and my son for that matter, but my son-in-law in particular, uh, has a protection and service mentality and a world-class work ethic. And when uh, we were at Broadmoor Baptist, which is a big church, we'd go on youth camp. We would literally take 300 kids to camp. And I knew Daniel as a 10th grader, 11th grader, and 12th grader. Uh, they dated for seven years before they got married. You know who's going to be loading the bus and unloading the bus and carrying this stuff in and the last guy out of the parking lot? It was going to be Daniel. Because he had that kind of work ethic. It was literally carrying one another's burdens. But it's a picture of we ought to model within our home. I'm going to help you with that. Do you need some help? Can I get those dishes? And then reward that behavior and encourage that kind of behavior. Do not allow your child to be served by you all the time. But model appropriately, consistently, in tandem with helping them learn how to serve and carry one another's burdens. We prayed for one another, James 5.16. And that's an out loud prayer. That is um, speaking into your child's life. And praying for them regularly and consistently. If I've got a, uh, a regret about parenting and I feel uh, pretty good in the, in the big picture, but I didn't do that consistently enough. I did it with both of my kids, particularly related to opportunities or incidents or teachable moments. Kathy, on the other hand, was right there at the bed at some point every night. And whatever I was doing, I wasn't always there. She was awesomely consistent. And there's a life lesson right there. If your spouse isn't doing that, you can. And I wasn't shaking my fist saying, I'm not doing it. Kathy, man, that was a part of her ministry as that mama. Pray for one another. And then finally, love this one, encourage one another. Encourage one another. We had 2 Timothy 4.2 says, and I like this, rebuke and encourage with great patience. Encourage with great patience. Ladies and gentlemen, moms and dads, you are your biggest, the biggest advocates for your child, your child's biggest cheerleaders, and you're also the one that God has stewarded uh, into you the opportunity to teach character and respect and responsibility and trust and service and love and how you model things like worship and sharing the gospel, and teaching, and ministry, uh, the way you do those things, that teaches your children who and what to love. This morning, again, I said this morning, and I'm assuming all of you were here, but I said, no shame, no blame, no ridiculously high bar that we're not going to be able to reach. If you have not, you feel like, spiritually mentored your child enough or things are almost out of alignment, just start today and just say, I think things have gotten a little crazy here and we're just going to tighten up just a little bit, but we got we to gotta correct this. We need a little mid-course correction. Or, you know, Josh, I've not prayed with you the way I really, as I think about it, wish I had. So from time to time, man, I'm going to step in and I just want to pray over you. Final thoughts. And I'll step over here for, into here for just a second. Final thoughts right now.
uh, in our milestone breakout. I talked about the blessing. John Trent, Gary Smalley, they've identified uh, as uh, through the Old Testament stories of blessing and then the way the church and the Hebrew church has ex- exhibited blessing through the years. Five components. These are worth writing down, and I'm done. Five components of the blessing. Number one, meaningful touch. Every child needs to know that they're loved and they need some appropriate affection and meaningful touch. Appropriate expression of meaningful touch. It needs to be affectionate and safe and appropriate and all of that. Can't help but say it. Hey, how many of you dads have daughters? See those hands. Dads, it can get weird when your daughters hit puberty. It just They get weird, number one. Did I say that out loud or did I just think that? I, they can get weird. That's just part of the, nothing personal, ladies. Everybody relax. I have a wife and a daughter. I'm an expert. <laughs> Dads who will let their girls crawl up in their lap and love them and wrestle with them, it gets weird sometimes when they get to puberty. And girls sometimes turn like boys do from puppies into cats. You know, there's a little bit of that. See, that was worth writing down right there, if that's all you got. But dads, you have got to be appropriately, of course, affectionate with your daughters. Your daughters probably need some rough noggins, hugs, big sloppy kiss on the middle of their forehead that they hate. They need some of that, daddies, because they need you. They need meaningful touch. Two, spoken message to your kids. Speak the truth. We talked about it this morning. Speak the truth. You can't just know it. You have to share it. Number three, attaching high value. Dude, there is nobody in the world like your child, and you tell them that. Nobody like you. God created you, especially as you, and I am so privileged to be your parent. That's a part of the blessing. Number four, picture a special future. You got to know what your child is and what they're not. You get a part of discerning that. Uh, It was evident early I wasn't going to play Major League Baseball. If you knew me, you'd be laughing right now. I was not going to play Major League Baseball. I would, my folks would have done me a disservice if they said, yeah, we're going to get you a batting coach and we're going to get you a, 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 a pitching coach so you can pitch and we're going we're gonna to play summer and we're going to travel and because we think you're going to get a D1 scholarship and play Major League Baseball. That would have been a gigantic waste of my life. It wouldn't have happened. This picture of special future means you picture a future discerning now based on what your child's gifts surface, what their interests and passions, where they lie and where their character development is picture a special future with that child individually. And if you don't know, say, baby, I don't know what you're going to be, but I know God's going to do something special with you in the future. And believe that. Number five, active commitment. And that's really simple uh, to say. It's a lifetime of living out. You are God's authority. You are sometimes his hammer in your kids' lives. You're the wheels under your kids' God has placed you in their life. He has allowed you to steward their lives as they grow up. You have about 7,000 days before they leave home. Show them a consistent, 
and active commitment to their well-being. You guys have been awesome. It says 6 o'clock right there. That's pretty close. We're going to pray in just a minute. I'm going to take two questions. Anybody want to? Can I take another two minutes? I'm going to take two more minutes. Will you allow me? Will you indulge me two more minutes? I want to say this. We live in a different world than we've ever lived in before. I want to talk about technology for two minutes. People, your kids are not entitled to a phone. They are not entitled to the internet. They are not entitled to the apps just because their friends have them. That doesn't mean any of that is evil, but they're not entitled to it. It is a privilege. And you must be careful because it's a dangerous privilege. And if you have little bitty kids, do not put your little bitty kids in front of screens. Do not do that. Stay busy, stay active, stay creative, stay tactile. Do not put them in front of screens. We don't know yet what those dopamine drops, that means the dopamine surges in their little brains, how they're being wired based on screens and interactive work. Our little granddaughter is less than two years old slightly, and she has a place where she has the opportunity from time to time to be on a phone. And as soon as she gets Elmo, everybody familiar with our friend Elmo? She loves Elmo, but as soon as she gets Elmo, she starts swiping. You know why? Because she'll be bored with Elmo in about a second and a half. She wants to see what else is there. And that's just like us, except her brain is developing. And uh, I just uh, mentioned this in my breakout session. Just read an MIT uh, scientist who said, no screens before three. And then you want to be really, really guarded by that and about that. Every crazy thought on the planet, every perverted thought on the planet, every bad ideology, ideology on the planet is available within seconds to your children. They are not entitled to it. They shouldn't have that. But the phone itself and the mechanism is a privilege. Guard it with care. Now, that's a pretty stern caution. But people, we live in a world that's moving really, really quickly. It's technology-based. It's not all a conspiracy to take over the world. It is a conspiracy to own you, own your information, and to sell you stuff. Know that. Social Dilemma documentary. How many of you? Social Dilemma. I don't know if you have. It's on Netflix, right? I've seen it. Netflix, you need to watch this. It's leadership from Google and from Apple and from Microsoft who've worked in the area of acquiring uh, viewers in order to sell product. And the takeaway line for me, the money line for me was this. Those products and programs, they're not the product. You're the product. They want you. Be very, very careful with your children. I feel like my face went really serious about three minutes ago. You guys have been so gracious to me. With our eyes open, let's pray. Eyes open. Father, thank you. Thank you for this church, for the privilege of being here, returning. Thank you for the way that you love us and the grace you show us. And Father, I pray as we leave this place tonight, we would be encouraged that we have this incredible mission and stewarding of the lives of our children. Help us to do that with wisdom and discernment. Help us to live with grace 
And God, we pray you would help us to know when to protect and when to propel our kids, when to prepare them for the future and how to love them well in ways that would look like Jesus. Father, we are grateful that you're a perfect father. Help us to learn more about your heart and character as you conform us to the image of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Blessings. Good night.